Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dan Diamond. I'm joined by Jared Padman. Hello. Hello. <laughs> we have a fucking legend on today. Yes. As somebody who I've greatly admired for two decades now. Jared Diamond. He wrote one of the most landmarky books on this topic. You won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Of course, it's Guns, Germs, and Steel. I think I reference this book a lot you do yeah it's an incredible book for anyone that's not read guns germs and steel and i'll argue that if you like sapiens it's in that world of a really comprehensive view of how we got here it's so good but he's got a ton of other books he's got collapse which i've read and is great upheaval the third chimpanzee his first real work and the world until yesterday now the term polymath which we learned once we were doing this show mm -hmm. is someone who knows about everything yeah lots and of different subjects he's a for real polymath he's a historian a geographer an ornithologist and he was the world's expert on how the gallbladder dealt with insulin that was how he got his professorship at ucla was he was in the teaching in the medical school yes yeah he's incredible i know oh, please enjoy jared diamond we are supported by taco bell Ooh. oh man we often do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. He's an Hello, Professor. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? With a booming tenor. This is Monica. Hi. I'm Dax. We all have matching headphones on. This is off to a great start. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Did one of your twin boys get you those headphones? Absolutely not. The headphones came from your colleague, Rob. Oh! We said okay. that makes sense. That makes yes. sense. That makes sense. But your boys are Monica's age, I think. They came... 87, April 17th, Joshua, 12.59 a.m. and at 1 a.m., Max, so that Max refers to Joshua as his older brother. <laughs> as he should. Wow. Do they follow the generic pattern of firstborn? I do not think so. They are very different. They are just two eggs that happen to come out at the same time. Okay. I'm heartbroken that I was at UCLA when you taught and I never had a class with you. I was an anthropology major, so I, you weren't on my radar yet. Do you remember a colleague you had that was a German geography teacher? He taught like LA geography and California geography. Would that have been Hartmut Walter? 
biogeographer. Wow. Loved him. I ended up taking two geography classes just because I liked him so much. What if much. he's his enemy? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Did you guys get along or were you <laughs> adversarial? Good heavens. We got along just fine. I'm not adversarial with anybody in my department, which is very congenial department. But I should add that UCLA recruited me in 1966 as a gallbladder physiologist. I was the world's number one expert on salt and water transport of the gallbladder. And so for 36 years, I taught medical students kidney and intestinal physiology. And then gradually as my interest shifted and I got more interested in questions of human societies, in 2002, I transferred to the geography department. I graduated in 2000. So now I don't need to be heartbroken. Thank Mm. you, because I would never have ended up in the medical school. So there's nothing to regret now, which is great. Well, you should regret not having taken advantage of the opportunity to learn about the gallbladder. Well, once I found out you were the world's reigning expert in the 60s in it, of course, I got more interested in it. But can we talk about your dad for one second? Indeed. Okay, because I'd say the person historically I'm most fascinated with would be Rockefeller. And so your father graduated from Harvard and then ultimately went to the Rockefeller Institute and trained there for a while, I think in 1927. No, dad graduated Harvard Medical School in 1927. And he was offered a residency in pediatrics, but the residency was not available until one year hence. And so Harvard told him, spend this one year setting up the first child hematology lab in the country at Harvard. And so dad went straight on at Harvard and he was never at the Rockefeller. Okay, great. I've already (laughs) reported some erroneous details. Well, you Uh, have to cut yourself some slack because you're the hardest person in the world to do research on because you've done a million things. Yeah, we can actually call you a polymath and it's not an exaggeration. Your father's three or more pediatric anemia syndromes bear his name. That's obviously an incredible honor, but we were just talking about this the other day. Like you get to discover a star. You're delighted to have your name associated with that. But when you discover some pediatric (laughs) disease, you know, anemia, it's kind of a sad (laughs) thing. Has that crossed your mind? Well, among the diseases was a childhood anemia where at the time that dad discovered it, all the kids died. (gasps) Dad noticed that the boys with the disease started to get a little better in their teens before relapsing. That gave dad the idea that this had something to do with the sex hormones. And dad followed these kids for a long time. Dad was 97 when he died, but he saw his last patient at age 93. And his last patient was one of these kids who was the longest survivor. So there's that emotional connection if you have a disease named after you rather than having a nebula named after you. Yes. (laughs) His father is known as the father of pediatric hematology. Wow. And then you grew up in Boston. In that time, as a child, you also were really interested in bird watching. So the polymath stuff starts really young. I guess my first question is, When you have a father that is of that stature and renown in that world, did you feel obligated to go into that field or even maybe scared to? Because what could you do now in that field that you wouldn't be in his shadow? Did any of those things or any of those things in your mind at that time? Yes, something related to that was in my mind when I was growing up and people asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up? My routine answer was, I would be a doctor like my father. I had been pre-med in college. 
but only in my senior year did I realize, no, I don't want to practice medicine. But as far as the polymath business is concerned, there's my father and there's my mother. Mom was a concert pianist. She debuted in town hall in New York. Mom started, my sister and me, playing the piano when I was six years old. Music is still a huge part of my life. But mom was also a fantastic linguist. So my love of languages comes from mom. My love of music comes from mom. You wooed your wife with a piano piece, no? Because Marie is Polish, I practiced before our first day playing Chopin preludes that I played for her. But then to propose to her, I had reason to believe that I would be accepted, but you don't want to make a mess of these things. And so I stayed home all day that day practicing Brahms's A major intermezzo, which Marie loves, that evening after we'd gone to a disappointing concert, I said to Marie, ah, the concert was disappointing. Let me play something you like. I played her that A major intermezzo, which I got perfectly because I had been practicing it all day. And then I turned to Marie and said, Dr. Cohen, will you marry me? Oh, my (laughs) And Marie broke into tears. She asked, how long should I wait to answer? I said, wait (laughs) one millisecond. And then Marie said, yes. Yeah, she didn't want to seem desperate. She wanted you to think you got a catch, that that was maybe one of many offers that had come her way. That is such an adorable romantic story. Okay, you and your family would take trips to Montana when you were around 15 and you would be on a ranch and you would actually even work there. And I think that somehow is going to percolate up into your interests and just the course of your life. Can you tell me like coming from Boston and landing in Montana, how eye-opening that was? The largest ranch owner in Montana, their grandson as a child had a difficult to diagnose disease. And so the pediatrician referred the child to come to Boston where the child got better. The grateful grandparents then invited our whole family to come to Montana in the summer of 53. I came back in the summer of 56, worked on the hay harvest. And that for 42 years was the end of Montana until in 1998, the head of a wildlife refuge in Montana invited me to come give the annual lecture for the wildlife refuge. So I and my wife and the two children came to Montana to arrive in the Bitterroot Valley. You fly into Missoula, you drive down the Bitterroot Valley, you see the snow-capped mountains. I start crying when I think of it. Every year since then, my wife and I go back to this most gorgeous place. I watch birds and my wife fly fishes. Bird watching, I began at age seven with no background to it. My parents were not bird watchers. It was just that I looked out the window of my parents' bedroom in Brookline, and there were sparrows on the lawn. I spontaneously felt a desire to identify those sparrows. Then in college, a classmate of mine, who was a really great adolescent bird watcher, after I'd been to Cambridge, England, both of us wanted to experience the tropics that had set Alfred Russell Wallace on his path. And so John and I cooked up a trip to Peru, to the Casihon Duailas, the highest mountains of Peru, where we climbed mountains, did some first ascents, then went down to the Amazon basin to watch birds, published two papers. The following year, we asked ourselves, now we've done the Amazon, what is the wildest place in the world, the most adventurous place? Of course, it's New Guinea. I had two friends who could tell me what to do with New Guinea people and New Guinea birds. So I went to New Guinea in 1964, fell in love with it, and I've been going back to New Guinea ever since. Yeah, that really kind of changes the course of your life. If I remember from all these anthro papers, 
World War II was maybe the first really massive integration of Westerners and New Guineas, right? I mean, that's when the cargo and the big deliveries were landing on beaches. New Guinea is pretty late in the commingling with Westerners. That's true. The loans of New Guinea go back further. Europeans were going around the coast of New Guinea in the 1800s. In 1884, New Guinea was partitioned colonially between Germany, the Dutch, and the Australians and British. But outsiders were just in the lowlands. And yet the first Europeans who went around the coast of New Guinea from the ocean, they looked up and they saw white in the sky. And they inferred that white is snow. So New Guinea is one of the three places in the world with snow on the equator because they're high enough to be glaciated. And in fact, New Guinea's highest mountain, the first ascent of it was not until 1962 by Heinrich Harrer the great Austrian mountaineer who did the first ascent of the Eiger North Face. But in New Guinea, it's so difficult to go through the jungle. It wasn't until the 1930s that the first expedition of miners, quotes, discovered the highlands of New Guinea, which are the most densely populated part of New Guinea. So this was first contact. There were more than a million people that the outside world didn't know about, and they didn't know about the outside world. There still is first contact going on when I began in New Guinea in 1964. And for example, in 1994, my field site in New Guinea was a bush airstrip. And five miles away, there were uncontacted New Guineans who had not given permission for anybody to come in outside and visit them. I feel like some very significant percentage of anthropological study are from there. As the Amazon was maybe with the Yanomamo and these different groups, it seems like so much of what we know about the simple subsistence farming model comes from studying Papua New Guinea. That's right. And a reason is that of the world's roughly 7,000 languages, 1,000 are confined to New Guinea. New Guinea has by far the highest linguistic diversity in the world. Europe has 48 languages. New Guinea has 1,000 languages. And people always respond, Jared, you mean dialects. No, I mean languages. These 1,000 languages belong to at least 65 different language families. They're mutually unintelligible. There are tonal languages like Chinese. There are non-tonal languages. When I work on New Guinea birds, the first thing I do when I come into a village or a group is to learn the names of the birds in the local language. So although Uh, I've learned only one New Guinea language, I've learned the names of birds in probably 100 New Guinea languages. That then allows me to converse. If I ask people, what do you know about the gray-spotted flowerpecker? They know nothing about the gray-spotted flowerpecker. But if I say, you know one of something along Isawanataba, oh, Isawanataba, any one of something, you got this fellow something, I got another fellow. Yeah. So you got to learn the names of the birds in the local language. Oh, my goodness. What a cool entree into language, having a very specific passion. Right. Language in New Guinea is wonderful. So in my life, I've learned either to read or talk 13 languages, although I'm current now in only five of them. Most of those languages I learned from books. The first language that I picked up without a book just by listening to people was the Finnish language of Finland. I spent a vacation in Finland. I didn't have a grammar. So I just talked with people <laughs> and listened. But then the second language I picked up by listening was the foray language of Eastern New Guinea. The Foray people are the people who are famous for Kuru, the disease that turned out to be a model for mad cow disease and prion diseases. My first night in the New Guinea Highlands, I was in a village. 
People didn't speak anything except foray. So at night, I went down to brush my teeth. At the little stream, I heard a frog croaking. And I said to the New Guinean, want him something, pigeon. And the New Guinean replied to me, Dakwo wanipidi windia. Now, I had already figured out that wani is water, windia is the locative verb. So I thought he was saying, the frog is in the water. And then later, another day, another New Guinean came. There was a frog croaking. So to demonstrate, I said, Dakwo wanipidi windia. And the New Guinean was, he was serious. No. <laughs> oh, oh. You know, Dakwa was the name of that species of frog, but this is another species. And that illustrated that the foray had 35 names for 35 frog species, but they had 150 names for 150 bird species. Wow. Right, right, right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Do you have a hard time talking to most people because no one is as smart <laughs> as you? The way you're talking about learning that language is like how I think about Spanish. I'm trying to pick up Spanish when I'm in Spain and I can't do it. Yeah, it's and you've astonishing. heard it. You've yes. been exposed to it in movies and songs and yeah. I should yeah. be able to do that if you can do that with the New Guinea language. Yeah, this is why you don't compare yourselves to other people, well, I just yourself. Did it. Now yeah. I'm sad. Again, you go to Harvard, then you go to Cambridge, now you're going to be a gallbladder expert. You win the MacArthur Foundation Award for your research on the gallbladder and they tell you we're going to pay you a pretty significant sum of money for the next five years so you can do whatever you want. And you said this was one of only two times in your life that you actually experienced real depression. And I'd love to know what caused the depression, what were the forces, how did you work through it, and how did it end up changing your life, that period of depression? Sure. I knew nothing about the MacArthur Foundation. I didn't know that I had been nominated for the prize. One day in 1985, I got a phone call, and the phone call began with a long sentence, like a sentence out of a German novel by Thomas Mann. My first reaction was, of course, delight. And my next reaction was depression. What the prize was telling me was, we expect big things of you, um, ah. but we expect more out of you than New Guinea birds and gallbladders. What are you going to do to live up to the faith that we placed on you? So it was that that motivated me. One of the two things that motivated me to write books about human societies. The other thing that motivated me to write books about human society was the birth of Maurice and my twin sons in 1987. At that time, I had written about environmental problems. I had heard and I had written that by the year 2050, so and so much of the tropical rainforest would be destroyed in global warming. But I was born in 1937. So the year 2050, a meaningless year to me. But when yeah. Max and Joshua were born, I realized they'll be at the peak of their lives in 2050. And their future is not going to depend upon gallbladders. Jared, what are you going to do to make a better world for your sons? So it was the combination mm. of that MacArthur Award and the birth of my sons that motivated me to do something more, namely to start writing books for the public. In addition to the things that made you nervous, I also would be afraid of the endless possibility. So for five years, I can pursue anything. It's almost too big of a box to be creative in, if that makes any sense. It didn't feel that way to me at all because I was a professor at UCLA those five years. I'm not going to give up my professorship. I'm going to carry on. But what more am I going to do? And at that point, I had already been writing articles for the general public. The background to that was that I went to a wonderful school, Roxbury Latin School, oldest private school in the United States, where although I expected that I was going to go into science, Roxbury Latin encouraged my interest in lots of things. Once I got my PhD, 
and I came back to Boston to Harvard to do a postdoctoral fellowship in gallbladder physiology without realizing what I was doing. For the first couple of years, I was developing my second career on New Guinea ornithology and evolutionary biology. But I wanted a third career, and so I got interested <laughs> in South American native ceramics, the Moche, Moche. Yeah, but yeah, I realized yeah. I didn't have a good sense of ceramics. You have a transferable skill, which is bird watching in so many ways is identical to being able to identify Moche works and decide what time period this pot's from. My professor, who is the great Moche expert there at UCLA, he said, think about it this way. If you ask guys like, what car is that? And they'll go, oh, that's a 1968 Chevelle. That's before the headlights got square. You know how to do this type of analysis. So I would imagine having the bird watching, like looking for these tiny little cues of what the thing is. I would say you were predispositioned to be good at that. The difference is that moche pots are silent. Well, not when they break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very musical. When I hear New Guinea bird songs, birds that have very similar vocalizations, I describe them musically, and most bird watchers mm -hmm. do not have a musical background. So I can say that accelerates and decrescendos, and those mm -hmm. first two notes are separated by a major third. So yeah. my musical background really helps with New Guinea birds. Did your sister also follow the same highly intellectual path? My sister Susan instead became a writer and a journalist. Mm -hmm. For a long time, she was the public journalist for the business section of the LA Times. Oh, wow. Susan has written two novels also. It's interesting to me that your father died in Los Angeles, you're in Los Angeles, and then Susan was in Los Angeles. You all somehow mm -hmm. bit into the apple of Los Angeles. The sequence was that I came to UCLA in 1966. UCLA Medical School not only offered me a job in gallbladder physiology, but the dean of UCLA Medical School, a wonderful person, Sherm Melenkoff, when I asked Sherm, do you mind if I continue to work on New Guinea birds in the summer? And Sherm responded, UCLA Medical School is interested in New Guinea birds. And he gave me $5,000 a year to study New Guinea birds. Wow. <laughs> My sister Susan moved the following year in 1967. My father, when he reached mandatory retirement age at Harvard in 68, was offered a position at University of California, San Francisco. So my parents moved to San Francisco in 68. And then when our twin sons were born, that was the last one my parents moved down to Los yeah. Angeles. So we were all in LA. Yes. Okay. You've written several books that we could spend three hours talking about. I have a particular interest in talking about guns, germs, and steel. It won the Pulitzer. When Yuval Harari was asked what in his education drove him to take this very comprehensive global macro view of everything he knows and synthesize it into a narrative, he said it's very, very simple. I read guns, germs, and steel while I was in college, and that changed his life. And I would argue Sapiens, which is incredible, Home of Days is incredible. I love these books. We've interviewed you all. They are carrying on what you started. I feel like what you did with Guns, Germs, and Steel is really the first combining of all of these many disciplines into one cohesive story. It seems like in academia, you have all of these silos of knowledge and no one's appointed to weave any of them together. It takes someone like you who just has these very curious interests in following the ornithology thing and then learning a lot about Papua New Guinea, an environmental historian. Would there be value in modern colleges to have as its own major a curriculum that tries to synthesize everything we know and try to pull it together? 
Were you the first to do that? And do you think there's value in that being something that universities commit to? No, I was not the first scientist to write successful books for the public. Probably the first was Rachel Carson, a rigorous scientific book that nevertheless appealed to the public. And then after Rachel Carson, there were others, Paul Ehrlich, Richard Dawkins, Lewis Thomas, and so on, Stephen Jay Gould. My first book for the public was not until 1991, The Third Chimpanzee. Guns, Germs, and Steel is a distinctive book. What made Guns, Germs, and Steel was New Guinea. When I went out to New Guinea in 1964, some New Guineans were still using stone tools. New Guinea traditionally had the largest number of people in the modern world who were still using stone tools, who did not have writing, who did not have state government, had small-scale tribal societies. And so when I went out to New Guinea in 1964, these were so-called, quotes, primitive people. Nowadays, you don't say that. But the stone tools were not modern metal tools. Why on earth did these people still use stone tools in the modern world? Was there something about them mentally? And it took right. me about one day in New Guinea to realize these people are at least as smart as, they're smarter than Europeans. One of the papers I remember reading was, even if you hadn't asked that question, they were asking that question. When they would interact with GIs, when they would interact with anthropologists, they would say, how did you get all the cargo? That's what they would call all of our material goods that we had created, right? How did you guys get this? They themselves were as curious as maybe you would have even been. That's right. And the immediate impetus to Guns, German Steel was, in fact, such a question that a New Guinean asked me. In 1972, I happened to be walking on a beach in the New Guinea area, and there was a New Guinea politician. And he was a really charismatic, smart guy. He had lots of questions, wanted to know why I was studying birds, how much did I get paid for studying birds. Sure. And eventually, in the course of an hour's conversation, we got to differences between New Guinea and Europe. And then he turned to me and he said, the conversation wasn't talk fishing. All the same, one of you, Pella White, white man, you, you come now, you kiss more, get a cargo. Now me, Pella Black, Pella belong me, me, Pella no got cargo. Why is it that you Europeans came with all of this cargo, cargo meaning metal tools and guns, and we New Guineans didn't have cargo? It's the most profound question about human societies. I blabbered something, but as soon as I said, I knew it was wrong. The question then festered in the back of my head. It wasn't until the late 1980s that I began to put together the pieces, the role of agriculture, the development of agriculture in different parts of the world, agriculture and its population explosion, the food surpluses that allow societies to have specialized inventors and bureaucrats and scribes. But agriculture arose only in certain parts of the world because for agriculture, you need domestic plants and animals. And there were rather few wild plants and animals that can be domesticated. So it took me more than 15 years to realize that the answer to that question had to do with agriculture. And that was guns, germs, and steel. And that's why, again, all of your books are worthy of us talking about. But I think at this moment in time, what's happening right now, culturally, is people are starting to finally learn what happened between slavery and yesterday. And it wasn't, oh, in 1868, we abolished slavery, and that's the end of that story. We're learning about redlining. We're learning about all these things that have landed us right here where we have complicated systems that are still racist. We have disenfranchised people through systemic coordination. So 
to me, once you have that, you kind of fully get the story in this country of how people have ended up in all these hierarchical slots. I think it's then fun to go even further back, which is to me what Guns, Germs, and Steel does. It says, well, how did we even get into a position where Europeans would have been colonizing all these places or capturing people and creating the slave trade? What's even before that? And so this book is so profound and will remain so profound because it gets us to the place where we, in the zeitgeist, are starting to understand where we're at. Right. So it addresses the question, why did these smart people end up with the stone tools, these New Guineans? And it has nothing to do with their brains, nothing to do with any differences in intelligence, although the way that I can make Europeans furious the most quickly <laughs> is by saying that my perception is the New Guineans are on the average smarter than Europeans. But they've got reasons why they're smarter than Europeans. Traditionally, there was strong natural selection. If you weren't smart in New Guinea, you starved or you got killed. Whereas in Europe, the main selection for the last 10,000 years has been selection for surviving infectious diseases. So Europeans have got genetic resistance to smallpox and other things. But there is not the severe selection that there is in New Guinea. But anyway, because I know that makes people angry, we won't talk about that. But <laughs> Europe had the advantage of being next to the Fertile Crescent, Iraq, Iran, southeastern Turkey. The Fertile Crescent is the part of the world that had the largest number of wild plants and animals suitable and valuable for domestication. That's where wheat, barley, peas, and then the big animals, that's where cows, sheep, goats, pigs, and nearby horses. So those things got domesticated First in the Fertile Crescent, the most valuable agriculture in the world. Fertile Crescent then had the first metal tools, the first writing, the first empires, then gradually went downhill. It's an environmentally fragile area. But yeah. all of that Fertile Crescent stuff, the crops and the animals got transferred into Europe, 7,000 BC. And Europe is ecologically robust. And yet humans evolved in Africa. Why on earth, with this huge head start, was it not Africans who conquered Europe rather than vice versa? Well, African agriculture, those big animals, the rhinoceros, never got domesticated. Yeah, Whereas good luck. Yeah. If Africans had domesticated rhinoceroses, they would have rode into Europe on their rhinos and wiped out Europeans. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. There was many areas where they had a single crop that could be grown. And if you plot how many crops that could be grown against how big their societies grew, how complex they grew in their structure, it correlates almost perfectly, right? As you go around the world and you look at all of these early populations of people, some had one and the Fertile Crescent had like seven. It's even better than that. The two areas of the world with the largest number and most valuable domestic crops and animals were Fertile Crescent number one, followed closely by China. The next two were in the New World, Mexico, Mesoamerica, and the Andes. And so where does writing develop in the world? Only three places. Writing develops in the Fertile Crescent. It develops in China. It develops in Mexico. All other writing in the world spread from one of those three places. And the Andes with potatoes and sweet potatoes and the llama did not develop writing, but they instead developed the kipu, these large net devices, which were recording systems, not recording systems based on writing, but recording systems based on knots. So those are the two areas in the world with the most productive agriculture, Fertile Crescent followed by China, next most productive, Mexico followed by the Andes, which developed their own empires. And then the other five that trail behind that are several areas of Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and New Guinea. Right, they have so many potatoes. The potatoes came to New Guinea. Mm. In New Guinea, domesticated bananas and taro and sugarcane. They did not domesticate themselves any animals because New Guinea has kangaroos, but you can't domesticate kangaroos. New Guinea has big bats. You can't domesticate big bats. <laughs> Instead, New Guinea acquired pigs and chickens and dogs all from Southeast Asia, brought into New Guinea maybe 4,000 years ago. They're not native to New Guinea. New Guinea pigs, where all you've got to feed them is taro and sweet potatoes, they're not nearly as useful as cows and horses. I mean, try hitching plowing. up pigs to your car <laughs> and plowing with a pig. It doesn't work. So yes, it is true that the sequence of value of domesticated plants and animals around the world is also the sequence of the development of dense populations, metal tools, writing, and organized government. And obviously, once we domesticate animals, and that is our main subsistence, farming and domestication, and also we can start storing crops, right? So now some portion of the population can actually make enough food to support the entire population, which frees up specialized 
work, scribes, cobblers, people working with metals. So that all happens. There's an explosion in population because you're supporting so many more people through the storage of food or having the animals you can kill at your discretion. But with that comes lots of transferred diseases, right? And this is when now we see a kind of an explosion of diseases enter that hunting and gathering populations didn't deal with. The fact that we're living now in proximity to all these animals, Westerners or Europeans or Eurasians, we start taking on a whole different biology, really, in response to all these animals. That's absolutely correct. So traditional hunter-gatherers got diseases from wild animals, such as malaria and yellow fever. But once we domesticated animals and then came in really close contact with the animals, we would even bring lambs and baby goats into our huts to cuddle them. We then began to acquire diseases of animals, which jumped to us humans and evolved to become specialized diseases of humans. We acquired measles within the last 10,000 years from rinderpest of cattle. And we hired smallpox, possibly from a pox of either camels or goats. Black plague, right? Plague came to us from actually rodents. They're living off of our surplus, right? Rodents aren't living off of hunting and gathering folks. They're attracted to our grain. The big epidemic diseases evolved within the last 10,000 years from diseases of domestic animals. But those humans who first acquired those diseases also had the longest time to develop some resistance to them. And for example, there's resistance to smallpox and measles based on blood groups. It doesn't protect you completely. But when Europeans came to the New World, the Europeans had some genetic and also antibody-acquired resistance, but Native Americans had none. And the result right. is that European diseases killed off something like 90% of Native Americans and Aboriginal Australians and Pacific Islanders. Yeah, it was the most lethal weapon ever unleashed, right, is all these different diseases we carried. That's right, and it happens fast. There was a village of Native American group called the Mandan. There were 3,000 Mandans in the village. A trading ship, a steamship, arrived at the Mandan village, and on that steamship was someone who had smallpox. And within the next three weeks, the trader observed that the Mandan population dropped from 3,000 to less than 200. So it was an observed wipe out due to one disease to which the Mandans had no resistance. Right. We think of the bubonic plague as being the most horrific thing humans have ever suffered because one in three Europeans died from it. And you're talking about 90 plus percent of a population disappearing. That's right. For the yeah. new world as a whole, the estimate is that 90% of Native Americans died of European diseases. And in particular, the conquest of Mexico, conquest of the Aztec Empire, and the conquest of the Inca Empire were both expedited by European diseases because when Cortes made his first attack on the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, eventually Cortes was thrown out, driven back to the coast. It looked as if the Aztecs were about to wipe them out. And at that point, a trading ship from Cuba arrived on the coast of Mexico. And on that trading ship was one person with smallpox. Smallpox spread throughout the Aztec empire, killed off the successor to Montezuma, killed something like half of all Aztecs within oh a few months. God. And similarly, the last United Inca emperor, Huayna Capac, died of smallpox that had trickled down from Mexico. And so when Pizarro arrived, there was a civil war in the Inca Empire from between two sons of Huayna Capac who had died. So European diseases played a key role 
in the overthrow of the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire. We feel like, oh, it's power and it's aggression and it's virility and all these kind of masculine tropes we've put on all these. Yeah, yeah, uh, military superiority. Exactly. And it really is just that they carry a bunch of diseases that they have resistance to. Yeah. A good chunk of the book is dedicated to the Polynesian story, which I really liked. How much role did competition play in the rapid evolution of technology? If I don't have a neighbor that I'm competing with, how driven is my technological needs? It's debated, but perhaps the biggest question of modern history is, why was it Europeans rather than Chinese, or Europeans rather than people of the Fertile Crescent, or people of India who spread around the world? What was the advantage of Europe? Yes, Europe had great domesticates, but China also had great domesticates, but Europe is geographically fragmented. Europe has got the mountains, the Alps, the Pyrenees, the Carpathians that divide up Europe. China is not bisected by mountains. Europe has these peninsulas, the Greek peninsula, the Italian peninsula, the Iberian peninsula, the Danish peninsula. Each peninsula becomes a separate country with a separate language. China does not have big peninsulas. Europe has these rivers that flow radially, the Rhine and the Danube and the Rhone and the Elbe. China's two big rivers flow in parallel and they were quickly joined by canals. So Europe was fragmented geographically and that meant competition, whereas China was unified 221 BC and has been unified ever since, whereas Europe has never been unified. Charlemagne couldn't do it. Napoleon couldn't do it. Augustus couldn't do it. And even today, Europe has always been divided into these different political units that are competing with each other. There's market forces driving the whole continent. But also, who gets gunpowder for it? Who has better guns? Who has better astrolabes? Competition may have given the decisive advantage to Europe over China, whereas in China, there was not competition between different parts of China. I even think of like Genghis Khan having his rule and largely attributed to having stirrups on their horses, right? Like a technology that then gets co-opted by the Europeans. There are many interesting things about Genghis Khan. One of the things that we've learned about recently in the steppes of Central Asia for thousands of years, there have been other Quotes barbarian. There was Adel of the Hun. There were the Scythians. There were the Sarmatians. There were all sorts of people in the steppes. Why was Genghis Khan the one who creates the biggest steppe empire? Maybe six years ago, some climatologists, they got old trees with tree rings. The width of the tree rings is a measure of rainfall. And it turns out that if you look at the annual tree rings in Central Asia for the last 2,000 years, The wettest 30 years in Central Asia were the 30 years leading up to the birth of Genghis Khan. Oh, wow. He was born at the right time when rain meant lots of hay for horses and to feed the cattle and sheep. He was a military genius, but so was Adel. Genghis Khan had the good fortune to be born at the apex of pay for horses with rainfall. Wow, yeah, there's so many factors and they don't fit nicely into the stories us humans like to tell. We want something real clean and simple. This guy was stronger. This guy was smarter. And there's all these contributing factors. Now, I've read a couple great books lately, one being The Molecule of More about dopamine and Dopamine Nation. Also, Behaves a great book I recently read. We start looking at the different biochemistry of Western people and European people. Does that interest you? Like that we as a people in America have a baseline dopamine level drastically higher than the Japanese who never left. 
that homogeneous population has a 0.07% bipolar rate and we've got a 3% bipolar rate. Like there's also a lot of biochemistry we're learning that differentiates us in this huge story of how we got here. Yes, there is indeed biochemistry. Let's take the diseases that kill the most Americans and Europeans, so-called lifestyle diseases, diabetes and hypertension. Diabetes has a genetic component. And yet natural selection is supposed to favor genes that are good for you, not genes that are bad for you. Why on earth has natural selection resulted in the genes that lead to type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes? And why are they now causing epidemics of diabetes, not in Europe, but in the developing world, in Arabia, in Africa, in Latin America? There's an interesting story of natural selection. In traditional times, if you were hunter-gatherer, there's not much food. You're working hard to get your food, and then maybe once a month you kill an elephant. The people who can mobilize their insulin most quickly to store fat when they eat the elephant, those are the people who will build up the most fat, and they are then capable of surviving subsequent periods of starvation. Traditionally, it was good to have hair-triggered release of insulin, but nowadays, when we in the West have our three meals a day, and when we eat lots of food, and we're having hair-triggered release of insulin, that leads to diabetes. Historically, abundant food came in Europe only beginning in the 1500s and 1600s with the arrival of New World crops. So probably what happened is that in Europe, there was a silent epidemic of diabetes in the 1500s and 1600s that killed off Europeans carrying the genes for diabetes, with the result that Europeans today have a low frequency of genes for diabetes. The people with a high frequency of genes for diabetes are everybody other than Europeans. The highest frequency of diabetes in the world today is in China and India. Wow. Oh, wow. Because they've had a Spartan diet and suddenly they're getting on the Western diet, wow. which is now killing them. Wow. I'm going to create a spectrum. I've not seen this written. This is arbitrary. This is my spectrum. I'm going to put on one side, we'll call it the noble, peaceful, savage model of hunting and gathering life. Yuval Harari. He, at least in his book, seems to think it was advantageous in many ways. And then I'm going to put on the other side of the spectrum, Steven Pinker, who would say early man was completely submerged in violence and murder and raids, and that the long arc of this experiment is positive. I'm curious where you would land on that spectrum, if you even accept it as a blueprint that we might chart you on. On the one hand, it is clear. And on the other hand, that clear answer is loathed and denied by at least half of anthropologists. So there are lots of studies of traditional societies around the world. These studies are virtually unanimous in showing that the vast majority of traditional societies had war. Many of the New Guineans that I work with participated in the last wars. Why was war common in traditional society? Because there was not a centralized government. In order to end war, you got to have a peace and you got to be able to enforce peace centralized government can declare war, but a centralized government also is uniquely capable of ending war. Whereas in a traditional society like New Guinea, when a tribal fight breaks out and there's a war, you make peace, but then some hothead a year later steals somebody else's pig and the war starts again. So the numbers are absolutely clear. The chances of dying a violent death were 
higher in traditional New Guinea society and in traditional hunter-gatherer societies around the world than in the worst of the worst, my wife being Polish, I know these numbers, the chances of dying a violent death in Poland during World War II were lower than the chances of dying a violent death for hunter-gatherer societies around the world. The rise of state governments has reduced the frequency of war. So despite atomic bombs and despite the Holocaust, despite World War II and World War I, despite Stalin, despite the Ukrainian famine, the frequency of a violent death was higher traditionally. But that idea is just so horrible. How can you say that with atomic bombs? Well, unfortunately, atomic bombs kill a lot of people in a short time, but stone tools and bows and arrows going on perpetually kill a higher fraction of people. So Steven Pinker is right about that. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you to look at your body of work globally. So if I look at your first book, The Third Chimpanzee, we're really learning about the species Homo sapien. And then in Guns, Germs, and Steel, we're learning about how that species formed societies and how those different societies competed against their neighbors and what made them successful or not successful. And then if we go to collapse, you start examining, well, how did these societies historically fall apart? What are the five indicators we could look at? You do a really fun job going through the Norse colonists in Greenland. You show us the factors that lead to a collapse. And then I would say now with the most recent book of upheaval, there's almost hopefully a blueprint of the way out of those collapses. You really, in my opinion, you start from where did we come from as a species? Where did we go to as societies? How did we falter and where are we going? It is true that in retrospect, you might be tempted to see a pattern to my books. The fact is that as I wrote them, there was no pattern whatsoever. Each book was about whatever I was most interested in at that time. After I finished Collapse, I got interested in questions that led to my recent book, Upheaval, because my wife, Marie, being a clinical psychologist, one of Marie's specialties is crisis therapy, how you help individual people in crises, people with marital breakdowns, death in the family, and so on. Hearing Marie talk a lot about how people deal with personal crises made me realize that has significance for how nations deal with national crises. So my book, Upheaval, was about how nations deal with national crises understood from the perspective of personal crises. But then the book, of course, concluded with a world crisis. We are now facing a global crisis. And I hope that the lessons that I've learned from Marie and that can be applied to nations about scaling up with the whole world and world crises. So if we can agree a little bit upon that, does it interest you on an introspective level that this trajectory of your books also a bit mirrors the trajectory of a human life in that in youth we have a lot of optimism and belief in some progress and some change and then perhaps towards the end of our life we're a little bit nervous about what we're getting rid of and what's going away and what things maybe we need to protect how we're off course do you think that that is kind of a typical trajectory of a human being on planet Earth? And do you think your work at all mirrored just your own life course? Interesting. A couple of things there. Young people today, my son's generation, are much more concerned about the future of the world than was my generation. For good reason, because the future of the world is in doubt now. Yeah, there's an imminent threat. And it's not clear whether we're going to get past the year 2050. 
But on the other hand, there were things that make me cautiously optimistic. And so my book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, does not end on a doom and gloom note. It ends on a cautiously optimistic note. If you press me to it and you ask me, what are the chances that we'll survive past the year 2050? I would say I'm a cautious optimist. The chances are at least 51% that we'll have a good ending (laughs) and only 49% will have a bad ending. Depends upon the choices made by my son's generation. It depends upon the choices made by governments, some of which make good choices and some of which make bad choices. Depends upon the choices made by big businesses. 20 years ago, I would have said big business is the most destructive force on the planet. But increasingly, some big businesses are making good decisions because they recognize it's good for their bottom line and also because CEOs have children and grandchildren. What good is it for my company to be rich if my kids are going to die in the year 2050? Okay, now here's where I will get into trouble. People will hate me about this opinion, and it's sacrilegious for me to suggest this right now. I don't know that it's different right now for your kids than it was for you, than it was for someone in 1900. If we started this conversation with Rockefeller and the state of medicine at that time, at the turn of the century, we had really no medicine. There was no research medicine. People were dying of completely curable things. And then we move into a very well-researched and predicted world famine that was supposed to occur until we created this new wheat that's now fucking us up with the increased gluten. But anyways, we move into World War One. We're going to all kill ourselves in this war. Then World War II, we leave that with the atomic bomb. We're certain that we're going to die of communism. There's going to be nuclear holocaust. That's quicker than 2050. I don't really think there's anything all that unique. I also think if history shows us anything, that everything we feared we somehow got through i feel like there's a tinge of arrogance in our prediction about this you're half right about oh, okay that. good I, if i can get half right with you i'm delighted until about the year 1900 people were not concerned about the end of the world and there was nothing producing the end of the world the first threat to the world was world war one but you're absolutely right that the first thing that could wipe everybody off the planet were the atomic bombs. And so in the late 40s and early 50s, yes, when I was in my teens, we were worried about a nuclear holocaust, and we're still worried about a nuclear holocaust. And when I think back on my life since the late 1940s, in the 40s and 50s, we were worried about nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States. Subsequently, we are now concerned about climate change, We're concerned about resource depletion. So there are realistic threats to civilization that were not here in 1900. You're absolutely correct that it's not now for the first time that we face an end of the world. The atomic bombs were the first real threat to the end of the world. But just like we, quote, got over the atomic bomb threat, it required everyone to get on the same page. It's the same thing here with climate. It requires everyone to acknowledge it's a threat. I agree, and I'm not positive what my issue with it is it's just i think the you don't the, like being told notion, what to do well, no no <laughs> i think it's the prevailing thought that we're in some unique scenario i bump up against a little bit also that it's pure pessimism yes climate change is totally real there's no question and there's going to be really predictable and measurable outcomes that are disastrous there's also going to be a lot of things that happen we didn't see coming I'm a little hesitant to just sign on that it's one thing, that it's all disaster and collapse. 
Is that scary for me to even suggest? Because I'm not saying let's not do anything. I think renewable energy for its own sake should be a goal. I think clean drinking water for its own sake should be a goal. But the I saw the golden age of the world and I'm about to witness the end of times. It feels a little dogmatic and religious. Too many of my colleagues who share my views about environmental problems preach doom and gloom. And if you preach doom and gloom and the world listens to you, why should anyone make an effort? I think it just yeah. results in apathy. Apathy and hopelessness. You have to give people hope, even if the hope is only 51%. And so even if I believed that the chances of our coming out okay were only 49%, I would tell a lie. I would say <laughs> I believe it's 51%. Because if I said it's 49%, nobody's going to make an effort. Yeah. yeah. I have a question because you have such an insanely prolific body of work. Is there anything that you look back on in your books or just your research or anything that you feel was a mistake or wrong or anything you'd change? <laughs> it would be shameless if I were to say, no, nothing I said was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there were lots of details we've learned. For example, in Guns, Germ, Steel, I talked about nine centers of agriculture. It's now clear that the Indian subcontinent is a 10th center of agriculture. That's something new. We've learned about multiple parallel domestications of barley and pigs. We didn't know that when I wrote Guns, German Steel. So we've learned lots of new things that corrected things that I said before that enriched the understanding that we had before. Or another example, when I wrote The Third Chimpanzee, my first book, we did not know whether Neanderthals hybridized with us Homo sapiens. Now we know, yes, Neanderthals did hybridize with Homo sapiens, and I and both of you and all of our listeners, except people in Africa, there aren't Neanderthal genes. Everybody outside of Africa is Neanderthal. That's something we've learned. The basic stories I told in my book, they are right, and <laughs> many of the details have enriched that correct picture. Yeah. I am just... <laughs> incredibly flattered to have gotten this much of your time. I mean, what a delight. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Oh, well, so when I get the time machine, it's around the corner. We think in the next five, 10 years, we're going to have our hands on one. I'm going to take a uh, gallbladder class in Ooh, 2000. Yeah, yes. I'm going to make sure I get into some gallbladder study. <laughs> <laughs> well, be well, and I wish you and your family well. And I just thank you for all the work you've done. It's so interesting and so comprehensive and so inspiring. Bye. Be well. Over now. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Canva. Good presentations take time. Or they used to, because now you have Canva to help you make amazing slides fast. I'm talking like seconds, thanks to the power of AI in Canva presentations. All you have to do is start with a prompt like a sales presentation for a tech company. Then sit back and let Canva work its magic. It's incredible what AI is doing. I'm seeing all kinds of image generated. I follow I these architectural websites that it's all AI generated. It's just mind blowing what it comes up with. You just tell it what you want and it'll do it. Boom. It's a time saver and it's easy for any department to use. And it's great for companies of any size. Even Fortune 500 companies rely on Canva. Finish your work faster and generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often 
do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is Mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. We are supported by Viator. Now, Monica, I'm going to Lisbon. Uh, so exciting. And I'm going to use Viator because, you know, I can book a tuk-tuk tour of the city on Viator. Yeah, I feel like you can look up even other fun things you guys can do together. Yeah, absolutely. That is where you go to find an experience while you're traveling. Because no matter where you're traveling or what you're interested in, Viator can help you plan better travel experiences. With over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Enjoy real travel reviews to get inside information from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. Plus, Viator offers 24-7 customer service so you know you'll get the support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. Find travel experiences for you and do more with Viator. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. We've just learned that Adnan. Yeah, this is, is full circle prison. for us. Yes. I mean, that's the original debate. That's the, the OGD. OD. What's G stand for? Original. O- OG stands for oh, original, original gangster. Original gangster. Yeah. You're right. We just need OD, overdose. Oh, I don't Original like debate. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't feel good about calling it the OD, but okay. we'll figure OGD. it out. We'll figure it out. We'll okay. figure it out. Okay. Um, we'll play with it, Duck, Duck, Goose. Anywho, our original debate, Adnan, mm-hmm. he is being released. I know. My dad sent me, my mom sent me, well, my dad sent to me and my mom, then my brother just texted it to me. Why don't you tell everyone about the text between <laughs> your mom and dad? I think that's really worth Is it? Yeah. <laughs> It was, really, was really funny. funny. So group text. <laughs> and also they're in the same house, probably hmm. sitting across from each other. My dad <laughs> sends me a text. Baltimore prosecutors moved to vacate Adnan Syed. It's a link to a news story. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then I said, that's so great. And my dad said, many years in jail. And I said, I know it's so sad. And then he said, they may not try him again. And my mom said, I heard also... <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I heard also the guy I'm making a murderer is freed. The Innocence Project got him out. And then my dad just wrote, I'm not sure about that, period. <laughs> that was as nice as he could muster. And he's then, like, what he wanted to say was like, that's not true, hon. And he's like, oh, fuck. Okay, I can't say that. What else? He must have drafted that response four times in his head. I mean, I know that sentence. Like, he says that sentence a lot. Well, that was my response when you showed me this. Yes. He says that sentence. It's his go-to sentence when he knows it's wrong. <laughs> the burden of always being right. Was Read it again. How do you say it? <laughs> I said, don't know if that's... No, he said, I'm not sure about that. But, and he is. He is. That's what's cute, is he's dead sure <laughs> that that didn't happen. So he's... I heard... <laughs> he's <laughs> mitigating. I heard also the guy... He's, she likes taking it over the mm-hmm. top. I heard also the guy I'm making murderers free. The Innocence Project got him out. 
I'm not sure about that. And then my mom, yeah, you're right. He's still in jail. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, you're right. He's still in jail. <laughs> Anytime I disagree with something I just heard, I try my hardest to go like, oh, is that how it, like I, you know, I'll try to say it as a question. Sure. The, oh, he did get out? Is that, I didn't is hear it, that. Oh, or, you, I, yeah, I didn't hear that as something I would, you would say. Yeah, I didn't hear that, that news. You guys are similar. Uh, Anyway, that was hilarious. Okay, I have a big update. Oh, exciting. Huge update. I had a very intense Saturday night. What? It doesn't involve... The masseuse? It does not involve the <laughs> massage therapist. An intense Saturday night, and I'm just hearing about it? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, uh, Laura and I went to lunch. Lunch was great. Okay. We went to Honor Bar. Wonderful. Derivative of Houston. Not Chicken derivative. Chicken sandwich. Um, sister. Yeah. Same family. Same fam. We had a great lunch, and then I purchased something from the row on the way home. While you were driving. What do you mean? <laughs> well, on your way. No, oh. no, no. I stopped by the store. Oh, they have a brick and mortar. They do. Oh, okay. On Melrose I, di I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was a great day. Yeah, then perfect. I, I get home and it's still early and I'm like, I'm going to chill the rest of the day. I'm going to edit. I'm going to do some cleaning. So, you know, I'm hunkering down. How many wines at lunch? Two. Two. Okay, great. I was like, okay, I'm home for the night. This is fun. I'll make dinner. What should I make? And mm. I was I was doing all this research, recipe research. I asked Watching Callie, videos. Watching so many videos. I think there's a new... I'm not cheating on Allison, but okay. there is a new Sheriff in town. There's a new show I might pick up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All I'm right. not gonna say anything okay. until I know I like it. Okay. So I asked Callie, what should I make for dinner? I do this sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she said, Oh, I just made this really good chili. And uh -huh. I was like, Oh, that sounds good. Send me the recipe. She sent it. It's like, this is, seems like a lot of ingredients, but fuck it. This is my night. Mm -hmm. Ordered all of them on Instacart. All right. Shout out Instacart. It comes. I start making the chili. First stop, onion chopping. Yep. Okay. Okay. My knife work is impeccable. I'm getting it really diced really nicely. Do you have a technique? Do you do an, I cut a grid. I did the, gr I do a grid as okay. well. Okay, if great. I'm, if I'm dicing. All right. Yeah. Um, which I was. <laughs> Boom. <gasps> Slice. Oh, oh. Finger slice. Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay. What? Which finger? Middle. Index? Middle. Uh-huh. Okay. Middle finger, and it was immediate. So much blood. Okay, everywhere. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is fine. Take deep breaths. Don't panic. Right. Wrapped it up, held it, you know, it was holding it for a while with pressure. And I was like, it's probably fine. I take it off. Just st still, like, Gushing. pouring okay. blood. And I was like, okay, that's not... Great, because I had held it there for a bit. So I, I did it again and still for a while, still bleeding really bad. Uh -huh. So then I was like, I wonder if I can crazy glue this yeah. shut. Uh -huh. And I thought maybe Max will know since he's a chef and I'm sure he's been around a lot of cut fingers. So I texted him and Callie and I said, hey, I just cut myself pretty bad chopping an onion. Do you know if I can crazy glue it? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, first he responded very fast, which I appreciate. And he said, oh no, are you okay? Also oh, just like put a lot of pressure on it. And I was like, okay, I've, I did that. And you know, I think most people think I'm not putting enough pressure. I had a few responses like this. You'll hear the whole I don't story. Know that I, there's an amount of pressure where you're pushing blood out of it too I, this right. whole a lot of pressure thing i think <laughs> needs to be 
when you have a big gaping hole and you've got cloth in there, maybe, but just wrenching on your finger that's cut, I well, don't know if I agree with that. I don't that. think, it's not like pressure squeezing, it's pressure closing, okay. you know? all right. Anyway, so it's like, I've been doing it, he was like, for a while. And I was like, oh. okay, okay. So then I do this, I keep checking, still really bad. Yeah. Lots of time is going by and this is not stopping. Mm -hmm. And then I am starting to turn a little bit. Like right. I need to figure something out. You're ramping up a little bit. Uh-huh. I text my friend who's a nurse. Shout out Alex. She isn't, she has a baby and busy. And so she didn't respond right away. And, you know, time is a ticking and the blood is still gushing. And then Anna texted me are you at all time? Because I had posted a picture of Jess and I at all time, but it wasn't from that night. Right. And Rob also texted. Okay, a little misleading. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Anyway, so she's like, are you at all time? And I was like, no, I cut my finger. You know, I'm like immediately, like I cut my finger and I, I want to know if I can put crazy glue on it. And do we know anyone who's a nurse? Uh-huh. And then she... You know, at this point, Callie and Max have ghosted me. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, they've they're done, done as much as they can That's do. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> Anna was like, actually, I do know someone. So then she goes away for a second and then she comes back and she's like, okay, my friend, she'll talk to you. So then I asked the friend, but, but okay. So by this time, it's been like an hour and 15 minutes and it is slowing. Okay. So I was like, okay. Yeah, maybe you're running out of blood at this point. Right. <laughs> And so I tell the friend, it seems like it's slowing. So I think that's good. She was like, okay, that's good. You know, fingers bleed a lot. It's probably fine. Just keep an eye on it. If it turns blue or like weird stuff's happening with it that feels abnormal, go to the ER. Mm -hmm. She said, don't put crazy glue on it. Okay. She, <laughs> definitive no. Yes. Okay. And then my friend Alex, she calls me and she's like, what's going on? I was like, it stopped. This is silly. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it probably just was really deep, but it's fine. Don't put crazy glue. Okay. So another, I got two, okay. Yep, two for two. Two medical professionals who said that would have been a bad idea. You hear about it though, right? I've heard this. Yeah. 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 I might even do it. So, I, thought, I mean, like, what's the difference between that and stitches? That's what I thought. So I was feeling like you, I was feeling arrogant. Yeah. Uh, but then I was glad <laughs> uh -huh. that I that I waited. Right. You have um, a Band-Aid over it at, at this point? At this point, point yeah. then I put a Band-Aid on it. Uh -huh. You know, I'm checking it, so I'm wasting a ton of Band-Aids. Yes, um, you can't stop looking at it. <laughs> can't stop looking. Yeah, I'm like, like your four-year-old. It's still not bleeding. Great, great, great. Then I feel confident it's done. Woo, yeah. what a what an hour and a half. And that was, I was about to ask. That was an hour and a half? Yes. Okay. Like, still making chili during this? No, so yeah. I'm just sitting. In, in the doldrums. Uh, in, in uh, what do you call Panic it? Panic zone. Ring nine of Inferno's, uh, Dante's Inferno. No, yeah, uh, purgatory. You're in uh, purgatory. purgatory. Yeah, That's okay. right. In the meantime, I'm trying to Instacart from CVS the real butterfly stitches. No, like Dermabond, which oh, is the super glue, glue, essentially. Okay. You know, my my thing gets canceled, and I have to order it again. It's a whole thing. These I, stories always are. I know. They're I know. never straightforward. <laughs> I know. I try to distract myself with an edit. Oh, okay. But it's I can't <clears throat> you use, use your my finger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that one was going poorly. Anyway, stops. It's over. Yay. I'm going to keep making my chili. Yes, resume. It was delicious. I ate it at 10 o'clock okay. when it was ready, and I was resentful towards it. Were you woken at all in the night with toots? No, not that I know of. Okay, because sometimes when I pound some chili <laughs> late at night and then I go to sleep, I'll actually wake up because it's such an enormous volume of gas. My body thinks <sighs> I'm about to poop. 
Okay. So it's not letting it, and then I have to wake up and give it permission to oh, let out this fart. this big balloon of chili. <laughs> okay, that didn't happen. It didn't. Anyway, my body had bigger fish to fry. We'll get there. So eat the chili, and then time to check in on my Band-Aid. But uh-huh. really, I was like, I think I can <laughs> let this. Ba- oh, no, that's why. So my friend Alex was like, keep the Band-Aid on now for some pressure. But if it's done bleeding, it's done bleeding. Great. Before bed, take it off. Maybe put some Neosporin on it and let it be. So then I take off the Band-Aid and I look and it's bleeding again. Uh Uh-oh, it's back. (laughs) It's back. Yeah. And back made me very scared. Uh Because I was like, hey. Now you're afraid to go to sleep. Didn't stop. Yes. And that was all an illusion. And then I texted Anna, I'm bleeding again. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Poor poor Anna. (laughs) (laughs) I texted Callie and Max, I'm bleeding Uh, again. I texted Anna, I'm uh, bleeding again. Uh, Any of the nurses? You were so close to getting a text from me. (laughs) Because I was like, do I need to get stitches? Like, is mm, this mm-hmm. a situation? A situation. Um, a situation. And then I started to really spiral because I was like, how am I going to do that? It's 11. Uh-huh. I'm by myself. I don't want to drive to the hospital there. That's kind of creepy. I also hate to tell you this, but. 11 o'clock on a Saturday is the last time you want to go to the yard. Now you're getting in there with all the drunks. Like exactly. now it's a shit show. No, yeah, they're busy at 11 on a Saturday. Yes, they're busy <clears> and <throat> I'm scared. Like sure. I was like, I'm mm-hmm. too scared to go there by myself. Right. Oh, I'm so alone. I'm lonely and I'm alone. Yes, and yes, I don't I'm have not, any those person. feelings are coming in. No one is responding to me. I'm alone have, on this planet. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed out because of it. Yep. When just earlier that day, when I was buying my expensive purchase, I was like, I'm so happy. independent. Yeah. I'm so, so happy to be single. Ha- I was. Because yeah. I was like, I can make these purchases. I don't have to ask anyone. I'm doing my own thing. I had two glasses of wine at lunch. Yeah. Like, I live my life. The rest of your day is totally at your, you, whatever you decide, you don't, no compromises. That's right. You Maybe your boyfriend wouldn't have wanted chili. You would have been cooking fucking chicken. Could have saved it, you. Yeah. So I'm on. It's, you were on a high. <laughs> it was a roller coaster. Yeah, and then you were day. lonely and Al- sad. Not only lonely, I was gonna die because I was alone. Right, right. Yep. Okay. So, Anna, are you still close? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I might need to go to the ER. <laughs> then I text Jess. He's working. Okay. So I was like, Jess is working, I know. So he's at least awake. Mm-hmm. Maybe he can take me to the ER when he gets off work. Yeah. Because also at this point, then my finger's like pulsing. And mm. then I do the wrong thing. You push on it. I Google. Uh oh. Yeah. yeah. I knew I wasn't supposed to, but nobody was responding. Right. And you were starting to have a tantrum. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it says if it's gushing blood, you need to go to the ER immediately because you might have hit an artery. And I was like, in the tip of my finger. So then I'm Googling, like, where are your arteries in your hand? Most pictures didn't have any arteries in the tip. Yeah. But then, of course, I found like two pictures where it was like leading all the way up there. Amateur artists. I guess so. Not sci-fi artists. No. Well, that's what happened. I totally hit this artery. I just was like, I guess I'll die. But Jess said, I'll take you or no. I don't think we got (laughs) you full surrender. You you passed out from blood loss and woke up the next morning. No, no one was responding yet. Okay. So by the time I was just like, I guess I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to lay here and like, maybe I'll make it. Yes. Well, because then I was like, should I call 911? Oh, my God. 
An ambulance. They put you in an ambulance. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like, uh, I would rather die. Yeah, than yeah, yeah. The EMT oh, showing knock him. on my door. You and know he's like, it what? would be you know it'd be bone dry by the time they got exactly. there. You know it. Should also if you go to the even if you go to the ER, the second you get that there was my worry. it'll definitely be over. It's I know. Murphy's Law. Exactly. And then I'd, I'd have to be like, it already stopped once and started again. So yes. making a case. <laughs> so then I text Laura, you know, I'm trying to, I need people, someone mm. to answer me. Mm -hmm. so, no, I was in Nashville. You were. Do you think you would have texted me? Well, I, th I thought about texting both of you, uh -huh. you and Kristen, but I was like, what are they going to do? Yeah, we're in Nashville. What are they going to do? Anyway, Jess responds, you know, fingers are. Disposable. <laughs> yeah, I think he said. <laughs> you have 10 of them. I Nothing think he said, like, they're resilient. You know, then, because Jess is my brother, yeah, I get was defensive. getting mad. Yes, yeah, I was yes. like, he doesn't understand how bad this is. Yep. Like, I'm dying. Yeah, maybe go on the attack. <laughs> no, and he was really great. He was like, wrap it up, you know, put a Pressure. light band. You know, he's telling me all these tricks and tips. He was great. And then then Laura, so then people are starting to all respond at once. Now it's all hands on deck. <laughs> Mike is in a panic attack. Giving me some reassurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I bring up the artery to everyone and everyone's like, that's not possible. Right. In your wrist, right? Well, there no, there are some in, in your hand. And a couple in your palm. But not up here. Okay. Okay. And, you know, elevated. And if you have to sleep, like put the pillow up, you know, giving me what I need. Anyway, so I made it through the night. Great. You woke up in the morning and what was the state of it then? You it, ripped that Band-Aid off. Yeah. First thing? Or are you like, I'm not even going to think about this. Like, no, I mean, I was thinking about it in oh, my sleep, I'm sure. like a I could have just, I could imagine where you like, now that you've slept, you've calmed down. Yeah. And I could see you going like, I'm not even going to get into that whole thing oh. for a little minute. No, I okay. took it yeah, off. Okay, great, great. Okay, it's not bleeding anymore, but it doesn't look awesome, but whatever. I was like, maybe I'll get a scar and like, that's cool. Yeah. Callie and Max had fallen asleep and Anna. So they mm. all, then I'm waking up to all these... <laughs> Concern text. Oh, yeah. I had also retexted on his friend, the nurse, and my friend. Uh huh. Uh, so, yeah, everyone's <laughs> responded. It's fine. And um, yeah, so then I've been cleaning it. I had a band aid on it yesterday because it was open and hurting. And it, do you see? Not from all the way over here, but. Okay. Um, I'll show you. Okay, show me. And then also, then I realized I had another cut. Because you, you didn't have a Band-Aid on when uh, you came in. No, I got to position your hand because my eyes have gotten so fucking bad. Oh, sure. Well, what's interesting is it's both a slice and a chunk. Yeah. You did a little bit of a chunk. But yeah, I bet that thing was really pumping. Did you put pressure on it? <laughs> <laughs> and do you see this other little slice? Was that in the same hack? Yeah. Wow, you really got yourself. I did, and I didn't notice the other slice because I was so obsessed with this. And that one just closed on its own without any attention? It didn't bleed like crazy, but when I woke up, I was like, why does my other finger hurt? And then I saw the little slice. Anywho, I did reopen it this morning on my hair. That hurt pretty bad. Ooh, yeah. God, that sucks. So I just need to maybe keep, I don't know what to do because you're supposed yeah. to keep it open, but I also want to keep who? it closed. I, I, I've... You see those commercials, things heal so much faster with a Band-Aid on them. Yeah, that was Band-Aid.com said that. <laughs> yeah. You're the trusted brand, trusted source. Yeah, I think you're supposed to keep it covered in Neosporin and covered. No, because then it gets squishy and like you want to make sure, I guess if I do it very lightly, but you want to make sure circulation, It's it needs air. It does? According to the nurse. Okay. Anywho, so that was my Saturday. What did your dad say? 
I'm not sure about that. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, so that was my eventful weekend. Do you want to talk about your eventful well, weekend? You bring up something I've been wanting to address. Okay. Which is I think some people misunderstood me. Okay. Which is 50% of all people with Munchausen. Oh my god. You know, I gotta make this really clear. Okay. 50% of people with Munchausen's are in the medical care. Okay. Nurses. Almost no nurses have Munchausen. Of course. I think because I said I always ask people when yeah. they're nurses if they have Munchausen, it's very much a joke. So yes. both things are true. Almost no one has Munchausen. Exactly. So 0.0001% of nurses have Munchausen, but 50% of people with Munchausens are nurses. Yeah. I just want to make that really clear that I wasn't implying that really. <sighs> Did the nurses come for you? The nurses are cool. The I nurses know. have a good sense of humor about it. Yeah. Like, hey, asked everyone on my ward if they had Munchausen. No one here. So, yeah, I don't. I think almost no no nurses have Munchausen. Just I think half of all Munchausen's people are nurses. Yeah, the two categories. Yeah, white men. <laughs> all shooters are white men. That's right. Not all white men are shooters. And a lot of white men have Munchausens. Thirty to fifty <laughs> year olds have yeah unmarried. Unmarried. Single. David Ferrier types. Yes. Um. And um, Sean White. And And Sean White. And Nicholas 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 Holt. Holt. Yes. Nicholas Holt has it. Sean White has it. (laughs) Oh, so I went to Tennessee. Yeah. Had a great time. Went to Bristol. It was so much fun. What a cool event to go to. It's a night race. Mm. It's a very legendary track. There's like 130,000 people on the stands. It's enormous arena. It's not an arena because there's no roof on it. But huge like it's it almost feels uh, cgi when you walk in and you see that many people around this half mile track fastest half mile in the world wow we're going 130 miles an hour in this little half mile track i met a bunch of really cool drivers they were all super friendly it was really really fun i almost got into one fight oh but i didn't i avoided it oh i know this is a braggy story but i think it's worth it okay but i also want to hear about there's this really big dude I think teed up to the max, like super muscular, older than me, like probably 55 or something. Mm -hmm. Looked wealthy, seemed entitled. Uh, We're in this big group at a driver's meeting. There's a lot of people. A lot of people want pictures with Kristen and I. Mm -hmm. It's fine. This guy is yelling, like, over here. No, no, let's get a picture with them. Let's get a picture with them. And while he's saying let's get a picture with him, he's just reaching behind Kristen and grabbing her back and pulling her towards him as he's shouting to his wife. He's not even looking at Kristen. And I had one of my little moments. Okay. And I grabbed his arm and I said, you can ask her, don't you fucking touch her. Okay. And it was, you know, depending on how he wants to go with it, that it's all on the table now. And he looked at me and he goes, all right. And he put his fist out and wanted a fist bump. Oh, okay. And so he, we pounded fists. Okay. The look was like, okay, I got you. So it got a little dicey. So that was the wrong way to deal with the situation. Okay. That was the old-fashioned Dax way, and it's the wrong way. Now, what happened that was really, I had to call Aaron almost immediately. We go into this restaurant, mm-hmm. Sperry's. It's a nice steak place okay. that I've been once before with Huey and Hayes. Okay. They have a salad bar. Oh, You know I fucking love a salad bar. I do bar. too, yeah. We walk in. We're seated in the corner, the four of us at this round table and then against the wall at a two top is a man who's probably 65 and his wife who i'm guessing is about 58. i barely even notice them i get up to go get my salad from the salad bar Mm -hmm. 
and he starts going nuts, the guy. This is all coming from Huey's telling me this. Oh. He starts going to his, ostensibly to his wife at first. Can you even believe this? Letting that guy in here with that T-shirt on? Hey, COVID's over, buddy. Time to start acting. I don't know what he said. Wait, he goes, what? I cannot believe. He's, I, now he's yelling so that Huey and Hazel hear him. He's going, I can't even believe they let him in. I would refuse him service in a T-shirt. He's absolutely oh my God. apoplectic that I'm wearing a T-shirt. And he's now yelling it to Hayes and Huey. I don't know any of this is going on. I'm at the salad bar with Kristen. Come back to the seat. And Huey's pretty mad. Like, in he in his mind wanted to tell that guy to shut the fuck up. Yeah. But he he was afraid, like, oh, I don't want to get these two ensnared in something that would be public, right? right. So he, when I sit down, he was like, oh, my God, you should have heard this guy. He's gone. He lost his mind that you're in a T-shirt. He was yelling for everyone to hear oh that you God. should be kicked out and that you have no class. And so as he's saying this, I'm, of course, in my mind, I'm preparing my confrontation with the guy. Yep. Like, what is it, sir, that you think makes you classier than me? Yeah. Other than the collar on your shirt. Like, where'd yeah. you graduate? What is your metric? Like, I'm already preparing this argument. And Kristen goes, you should, you should buy his dinner right now. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, should I do that? I mean, it felt so counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But it, right when she said it, our waiter, which we had the same waiter, dropped the check right at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then walked away and he walked over to our table to ask if we wanted drinks. And I said, oh, would you mind? I'd love to buy their dinner. Uh, he's like, oh, do you know him? And I go, yes, yes, I love them. I just <laughs> love to treat them. So I give him my credit card. He brings the bill back. I, you know, give the guy a good tip. I'm assuming he gave him good service. Yeah. Pay for it. And now around this time, the guy is learning that I've bought his dinner. Mm. And so he's like, what? Who? What? He, he bought my, now the wife turns around and she looks over at me and I go very softly and sincerely. I heard that my t-shirt might've offended you guys. And I just wanted to apologize. I did not mean to ruin your dinner. I uh, hope you'll let me buy it. That's nice. <laughs> they were so fucked up by that, right? Yeah, he goes, he goes, let's get out of here. And he stood up and he took the, he walked around the back of the restaurant because he would have had to walk in front of our table yeah. to go out the exit, the normal way anyone. He walked all the way to the back of the restaurant behind the salad bar so that he could exit out the other door. And I was like, oh my God, that wasn't the most genius response ever. Mm -hmm. Did the wife say? say anything? She was just embarrassed because right. now I was a nice person who bought their dinner after her husband made this big scene. Oh my God. And I was like, oh my God, that is the way yeah. that you deal with those it things. Is, yeah. It's not for me to fight with him and then him to leave feeling correct. Yeah. Because I would have certainly gotten aggressive and he would have been right. Yeah. And then I would have been confirmed in the fact that I thought he was an asshole. It was so Jedi. That's great. Oh, I loved it. It made me so much happier because normally I'd be leaving that situation going, I probably shouldn't raise my voice. I probably embarrass Hayes in Houston and Kristen. They come to this restaurant. You know, I would have had all these regrets. Yeah. But I didn't. I felt clean as a Good. whistle. Good. That's great. It was the best. I think it's the best $160 I have spent in a decade. That's great. Yeah. I'm learning as I get older. Yeah, we all are, I hope. Yeah. What an asshole. He's not. That person's not learning as he gets older. Aaron, when I told Aaron, Aaron was laughing so hard. And he goes, oh, my God, we just would never think to do that. We just want to fight everyone. He mm -hmm. goes, well, that's so much better. He goes, he's going to be thinking about this. He goes, I bet his New Year's resolution this year is going to be to stop thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I hope that's true. Oh. That would be the ultimate. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, man. 
Um, this is for Jared Diamond. Mm, Jared Diamond. Intimidating guest. Very. Intimidating. Just, the level of knowledge on everything. Yeah. And not to be ageist, but he's quite He's old. 85. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to be so far ahead of everyone and be 85, like it's, it's bonkers. No, minimally, I don't even know if it has to be ages as much as like how fucking inspirational. If yeah. I can, if I end up as sharp as he is at 85, I'm going to be delighted no but it's not sharp i mean he is extremely sharp but he's still so much smarter than everyone younger than him yeah yes okay so you said and we've talked about this before but you said 0.07 percent of japanese people are bipolar and we're three i did find a whole chart oh a chart I hope I said these aren't the numbers, but something like this. Cause I, no, you three, didn't. I didn't? No. Because 3% is too high, I think. I don't think it's that high. Okay. The United States has, a, has the highest lifetime and 12-month bipolar syndrome. Rate of bipolar. 4.4% and then 2.8% for the 12-month. So it's even higher than I guess. I mean, lifetime is oh, 4.4. Wow. India has the lowest. India does. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Point 0.1 and then point 0.1. Point 0.1. It says exceptions were found for Japan, a high-income country with very low lifetime and 12-month, 0.7 and point 0.2. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I said point 0.07. Did yeah. I say oopsie? It's okay. Okay. All right. Now we know. I got a seven, correct? You did. That's yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> Also, he said, I can't believe I'm going to fact check Jared Diamond, but I am. He was wrong about everything. No, he, um, <laughs> he said China and India have the highest frequency of diabetes currently. And oh, my God, it happened again. Got to go to my history. My favorite thing. Really quick. Do you think he meant the fastest growing rate of diabetes? Because the U.S. has to have the highest rate. of It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, no. Okay. Top oh. 15 countries with the highest rate of diabetes. This was 2021. Mm. So maybe. Can I guess one? Yeah. Tonga. No. Okay. Not in the top 15. <laughs> um, number one, Pakistan. Really? It says 30.8%. Okay. Are diabetic in Pakistan. Highest rate of diabetes. Wow. Then French Polynesia. Oh, okay. Kuwait. Tonga. Kuwait is three. Okay. Nauru, Nauru mm. is four. The first time I'm hearing the name that name of a country. Yeah, there's a lot of African countries, and he did say that. Okay. Anyway, but China nor India They're are in the top list. fifteen. Okay. Hmm. And the oh. United States is not on the top fifteen. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Not in the top fifteen. No. Oh wow. Don't you think a lot of that has to do with like what your genetic history is? Like Pakistan for sure is was a hurting. Well, uh, he said now they're adjusting to this new diet. Exactly. And then I think compounding it is if your history was with mostly animals as opposed to crops, there's no carbohydrates in animals. Like if you're only you're getting the milk and the meat yeah. and the cheese. But India has such a high rice-based diet. Right. So that's that's weird. And China. And China. So I don't know. But they're not on the top 15. Anywho, that was that. That was it. One fact from him and one from me. Obviously. Yeah. He did a good job. He's very factual. Anyway, I'll keep you updated on my finger. Please do. <laughs> please, please do. 
And um, our thanks to the fine people in Bristol for welcoming us. It was such a fun, fun experience. And with Larry Kirby, Huey Hayes, we had a riot. And our thanks to Sears, the Sake House. What's it called? Mm, Sperry's. Sperry's. Which I love. Okay, shout out to Sperry's for letting you in with the t-shirt. Uh-huh. <laughs> a really big, huge deal. They bent over backwards for you. Great salad bar. Mm. Oh, is it delicious. They have, um. and I got to get my hands on it, they have something called old-fashioned blue cheese. And when you're looking at it on top, it almost looks like French, right? It's like got oh. an orange oil over the top. Oh. <laughs> and then when you dig down and pull out, you're getting the, the white and the blue cheese. I couldn't figure out, are they mixing it with French dressing Weird. or maybe just vinegar? But it's oh. it's unbelievable. Wow. I could drink a bucket of it. It's so good and so unique. That is unique. That's very proprietary. Novel. It is. Very novel. Very <laughs> uh, yeah, traditional blue cheese. If you had been in town. Yes. Would you have wanted a call from me? I'll always drop anything and come help you. Or if you're an intruder or you're hurt, you're not alone. I was in Nashville. I was alone. And you were. <laughs> but you're never alone, except for when I'm in Nashville. Yeah. But of course I want you to call me but if would you, you need help. But would you have been like, oh You call me when your tire God. is flat at your house and I'm yeah. there on a jiffy. Yeah, but tire is flat is- this. You're right. This is a weird zone. Yes. Because I don't. I wouldn't ever go to the hospital. I know. Because you've been through so much yeah. medically, yeah. you just wouldn't be worried. No. Nope. At you're all. right, you're right. You would have to remove your finger. Like and then I'd be yeah. scared. Like, sure. oh my God, I'll be right there. Which is ironic because you were you were worried about my ear and I wasn't. Well, because I know the reality <laughs> that any infection's getting worse. It's not yeah. getting better. Like I just was looking at it and thinking, like, well, this is the best it's gonna be today. It's gonna be worse tomorrow and then the day after. Yeah. And the longer we leave them in there, this is getting worse and worse and worse. Like if you were holding the blade to your <sighs> finger and continuing to cut. I would be very concerned. And I had another wave of spiral of when was the last time I got a tetanus shot? Okay, sure. You know, these, all those things. Yeah. But anyway, so it's okay. It's okay that you wouldn't have been too worried. Right. You know, I think I badly express a lot of love through worry because that's uh, how it was presented to me. That's how I wow, felt. Wow, what an love. incredible realization. Yeah. Yeah. Parents. And that's a real, I'm always going to probably let you down in that way. I'm not generally that worried or frazzled by much stuff. Yeah. It's more, I don't expect other people to, I mean, I do think I like it weirdly yeah, yeah, when of people course. show worry for you me. You feel loved when Because my parents yeah. were, were so worried all the time and they love me more than anyone's ever loved me or will. Yeah. There's some weird framing. And it's muscle also, memory. But it's also what I do to others. I worry about people nonstop. As your act of love towards them. Yeah, but I'm trying to not do that. I'm working on that in therapy. Like that's yeah. not how I'd like to. Right. That makes sense. That's my realization that I think I'm showing you I love you by never, ever asking you for help. Knowing it is really important. Yeah. Like, oh, I have a weird, weird definition of how you show love for somebody. Yeah. This is never be a drain on them. I know. It's all warped based on our, our, our childhood. Stuff. Yeah. Your love language is, is to worry about people and to have them worry about you. And give gifts. And gifts. <laughs> gifts and worry are your love languages. You have a couple. <laughs> but I'm working on it. Yeah. I'm impressed. Thanks. I'm proud of you. Thanks. All right. All right. I love you. I love you too. 